Coaches, how are you? This is Coach Kevin Furtado of the Championship Vision Podcast. Welcome to Episode 71 of the Championship Vision Podcast. Today, we have Coach Bob Bigelow. Bob is a former professional and collegiate player and is one of the foremost youth sports speakers and youth coach trainers in the country. He played for the Kansas City Kings, Boston Celtics, and San Diego Clippers, as well as for Hall of Fame coach Chuck Daly, who coached the 1992 Olympic gold medal dream team at the University of Pennsylvania. Bob has been featured dozens of times in the media and co-authored the groundbreaking book about improving youth sports, Just Let the Kids Play. He has served as an expert panelist and board member for several organizations dedicated to bettering youth sports and has made numerous print, broadcasts, and media appearances. Bob has conducted hundreds of youth basketball clinics for coaches and players in grades four to eight over the past 20 plus years. He advocates developing fundamental skills and fully meeting the needs of children as the top priority in youth basketball programs. Coaches, I think you're really gonna enjoy this podcast and the reason why is I, I actually I have all of Bob's tapes and he does a wonderful job on how to be age appropriate when you're teaching kids skills. And I think that's the biggest issue we have now in youth sports is we're so focused on the elite athlete rather than focusing on just getting kids involved and enjoying the game. Bob and I are really going to have a great discussion about this. I think you're going to enjoy it. So get your notebook out, and let's welcome Coach Bob Bigelow. Bob, welcome. Great. Okay, no, you're coming in You're coming in loud and clear. Okay, it's, I, I don't know if it has to do with how close your voice is, but, uh, I mean, I, I'm good because of my voice, so you can probably hear me from across the room. Bob, I can hear you. You have the best voice. You have the TV voice, I think. Um, well, as someone once said, I have a radio voice and a radio face. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Well, hey, tell Nancy. Thank, thanks so much I for will, hooking you I, up, I, man. That's I great. Her, uh, without her, I'm dead. I have no idea. So she <laughs> she held the phone. I feel the same way. She texted a couple things. She hit she hit the she hit it on the nose. So hey, we'll just hope cross fingers between your cell in Georgia and mine here in Massachusetts. We'll uh, we'll be able to complete an hour. Yeah, <laughs> that's sure, great. I, Why, sure I sure char- I make, make yeah. sure it's charged enough because I don't use this thing all that often. So, <laughs> well, I've already given you a, a you know it's a great introduction um, before the podcast and everything, and I I just want you to tell a lot of the listeners are guys just like me. They're either high school coaches, yep. middle school coaches, youth coaches, retired coaches. Tell them a little bit about yourself and your journey and how you got to the point where you are now. Hey, I'm the non-coach coach. <laughs> Believe it or not, I have not in the 50 years I've been involved in basketball coached all that much. I've never really had a team to coach. I have, but uh, those days, believe it or not, are like 30, 40 years ago. I mean, really, other <laughs> than my two sons, who are now 27 and 32, when they were coming through my suburban Boston town here, um, I coached them. I coached everybody, as a matter of fact. Um, I have really not, you know, started in November, finished in March, like, you know, all your buddies. 
So that may be a good thing. That may be a bad thing. I don't know. It depends on how they look at it. <laughs> <laughs> However, with that said, between uh, youth basketball coaches, uh, high school, college, and pro, that basically covers about ages 8 to 40 in this country. Uh, I probably have at least uh, 10,000 friends in the business. <laughs> so <laughs> I've known quite a few of them. But anyways, I so started you've been, by playing, I, yeah. just mostly everybody. And, yes. uh, but I didn't start till sure. later because of the era I grew up in. And I played four years of high school basketball here in my suburban Boston town. I played four years for Chuck Daly at the University of Pennsylvania in the early 70s when he was a college coach. And then I played four years in the NBA in the late 70s. So my playing career is now, believe it or not, 40 years done. <laughs> since then i've been a retired player <laughs> absolutely but you're getting I, I love what you're doing now and i um and i love your videos i love what you're because i think there's a major problem in youth sports and i think you would agree with that and you have really attacked that head on tell, tell our audience like what is your main mission on what you are trying to accomplish well i have all the work a you're trying i have a glib statement that i've used a million times and uh, some people react to it differently. Um, but basically what I've said for 30 years is I'm trying to get adult egos out of children's sports. What I'm trying to suggested to me 30 years ago is to give children's sports back to the rightful owners, which are children. Now, that's all nice and good and almost Pollyanna-ish, but what's happened in the 30, 40 years that I've sort of been involved is children playing, which is what I did the lion's share of my time as a kid with other kids, without adults, has completely turned into something else, which is adults organizing it, controlling it, coaching it, and everything else the disappearance of free play in this country the last four decades is phenomenal. And I'm not just talking basketball, of course. I'm talking all sports. I mean, my sport as a kid was baseball, you know, a huge sport down where you live in Georgia. But if I played 1,000 hours, well, let's say 10,000 hours of baseball between ages 3 and 14, uh, probably 2% of that baseball was organized. You know, where we put on a uniform and we had a coach and we had an umpire. And the other 98% was done by ourselves with other kids on playgrounds and sandlots without any adults. So that doesn't happen in this country, as you know, anymore, Kevin. It doesn't. It's really a sad note. Um, and tell me if my life kind of it sounds like your background is very similar to mine in that when we grew up, we had a lot across the street where we would go out and play with a tennis ball or a wiffle ball. We would play teams. We would have a, it's basically just organized by kids. And then we would play street football in the street. <laughs> I mean, until car, you know, until hard ground. By, then you moved over. <laughs> until a car came by. Yeah. Hey, cars coming by. Everybody get off to the side. Then we go right back into it. And then we would go, we'd play, you know, everybody had a hoop. I grew up in California. We had hoops. We played. We had organized. We we just organized it as kids. That ain't. That's not happening anymore, is it, Bob? No. Well, I mean, you're ten years older than me because we've had a conversation previously, and uh, you grew up in the '70s. I grew up in the '60s. 
So uh, basically since 1980, and now we're talking 40 years ago, this has inexorably changed. And I'm not saying it's for the worse because I don't want to sound like a guy who grew up with Leave it to Beaver and the Jetsons, even though I did. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, uh, there are some great things to be learned. And this has been proven time and again over centuries from kids going out and figuring it out on their own. And it's one of the uh, things that I've tried to bring back There's this whole message, even though we know it's organized, we know adults have to organize it. We know you got to be at the ball field at a certain time to play a certain game or a practice. Uh, there is great advantage for kids to play on their own. You know, and I have called it for years, the elementary school recess approach, which is mm -hmm. basically the way elementary school recess still runs. The kids go out, they play, and the teachers are the supervisors, and they make sure the kids don't run in the street chasing the ball. And then during recess, the children have to figure out what to do. There are a couple of balls, there's a couple of kids, there, you know, so they figure out something. But it is not governed by adults. It's not coached by adults. It's not organized by adults. All three of those are the kids. It's their own little jurisdiction to play with. Yes, and I, and I think that's needed. Being a PE teacher myself, um, you know, of K-5 kids, I, I totally understand that. And kids are so creative if you allow them to be creative. And I think our, it just from what I notice is parenting, they're becoming more and more controlled freaks almost. Um, and it's prevalent. I'm not sure if it's good. I think it's a lot of it has to do with safety. Yeah, that's, that's a big there part. comes a time. Yeah, it's a big part, right? Yeah. I mean, so what are some of the things that you're trying to do? Because you wrote you've, you've written some great articles, a, a great book. Tell me about what you're trying to do to solve this. Well, I actually have two books. One was written back in the early last decade, Just Let the Kids Play. And the other is an sure. e-book that I wrote uh, with a couple of uh, buddies uh, three years ago called You Sports Still Failing Our Kids. Uh, the biggest challenge of all if you want to boil this down to its essence, is what I call the game. The game is Team A playing Team B, which is, of course, the crucible of sports. That's what it is. Why everybody likes sports or plays sports or coaches sports or watches sports. All fine and good. And believe me, I'm not out here to eliminate something called the game. But the challenge with the game is simple. Somebody somewhere on the field, in the hockey rink, on the court, keep scores. Oftentimes, it's publicly shown. There's a scoreboard. <laughs> and once you start publicizing scores, right, and all of a sudden you're down 8-3 in the fifth inning, <laughs> or you're down by 15 points in the second quarter in basketball, well, now you've got a coach, the one who is facing the deficit, and can he or she look at this as a sixth grade game, a fourth grade game, as development, player development for kids? Or are you going to resort to the tendency of what too many adults do? Now it becomes my ego on the line. So what do you do as a coach? You're a longtime coach in order to uh, shrink that deficit. Well, if you're a coach who wants to win or try to do better, then you're probably going to play your better players, or as I've said for 30 years, less worse players, 
And then the ones who you don't consider those that can help you try to get that deficit back are going to sit on the bench. It is well known in our trade, and this is nothing new to anybody listening to this. The number one reason kids play sports is to play. They do not play it to watch you and me coach. There's not one kid that I've ever coached out of the 40 gazillion who have come up to me after a game and said, gee, Mr. Bigelow, you really coached well. Like they care. <laughs> they don't They don't at all. What they're interested no, they in is and in how they did. But if the number one uh, facet of a kid playing sport is to play, well, where do you think winning is on the priority list of adults who participate in these sports? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's a whole lot higher than where the kids place winning. Sure. And now what you run into is the biggest chasm, the biggest challenge have with kids in sports those who are running it want to win or want to win more than the kids those who are playing it or not as the case may be want to play so that's where the rubber meets the road in all this stuff i have talked myself blue in the face about this for 30 years and as a coach coaching kids i have lost so many games because i played kids Kids who weren't going to win me the game, but kids who played because they need to learn how to play. And they're not going to do that by watching other kids play. Yeah, so, so it's you, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that. I think I think it's for you're trying to get ultimately right, Bob, you're trying to get more kids to create a love for the game and, and maybe down the road they can become a Bob Bigelow, but that's not really that important. You're just trying to get kids more involved in the game. No, I mean, obviously, for all the right things and reasons and benefits, we do want kids attracted to sports. Sure. And we want them to play sports, whether it's basketball, hockey, tennis, baseball, tiddlywinks. We want them active in some way, shape, or form. But so many children in this country run up against the adult ego. And what is the adult ego? The adult ego is an adult coaching, an adult running the program who wants to win too much at the expense of kids who want to play. And we have too many children leaving sport at way too young an age before we even know what they might have been in sports. That is the biggest challenge of all. I call it the disappearance of the late bloomers before they ever bloom. We'll never know. By the way, in our sport of basketball, we'll concentrate on men's basketball right now. Do you realize that all those 80s guys that came up in the pros, the Hall of Famers, the David Robinsons, the Scottie Pippins, the Michael Jordans, were all incredibly late bloomers? But you know why they were allowed to bloom late? <laughs> because they weren't playing young. Or at least they weren't playing organized young. So they were not put under evaluation. They weren't ranked the best fourth grader in the state of Arkansas. <laughs> Scotty Pippen, which is where he grew up, was probably the 347th or maybe the 1347th best fifth grade basketball player in Arkansas. But no one cared. 
David Robinson, one of the all-time greats, grew up in suburban Washington, D.C. in Virginia. He was six foot six when he left high school. Hey, do you remember where David Robinson went to college? Yep. because there was just no organized system to join. I mean, uh, some of the kids today, I tell, or even the adults who are 20 years younger than me, uh, they, they sort of uh, look at me awe-inspired that I didn't start playing basketball till ninth grade. I literally played in my first organized team in ninth grade. And the only reason I did was because we didn't have any basketball in this town until ninth grade. <laughs> we, we had Little League Baseball. I played that, which was maybe 12 to 15 games a spring when it didn't rain or snow. And uh, then, as I said, the rest of the time, we just went out and played. So I, I just, you know, the era of the 60s and the 70s where you grew up and even into the 80s, it was just a matter of the fact that there just wasn't a whole lot of organized stuff before high school. There was some. There was some middle school sports. And, of course, there were some sports for elementary school kids, maybe individual. There might have been a little golf and a little tennis. But it was just those those decades were full of kids just playing. And then, of course, I hate to say the adults hijacked it. <laughs> and by the way, some of these adults, all of these adults grew up a different way. So I'm not sure why. I've always said, blame the baby boomers, and I'm one of them. <laughs> we played all these, all these uh, unorganized activities when we were kids. And then activities. Why did that happen? <laughs> That's a great question. And, and now has that come up in your research? Oh, just sure. I, I, I mean, I mean, what there has to be a reason somewhere. There has to be some clue to there that. There are two sociological reasons that I can identify over the last 30 years. Uh, the reason parents became and you alluded to it earlier with a, 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 a concept called safety. I truly believe the baby boomers, once they entered the workforce, then more women entered the nine to five workforce. I mean, I am the child of a stay-at-home mom who, believe me, right. did plenty of work at home, and like all our moms did, right? But we were always around the neighborhood, and so were our moms, and our dads were out working somewhere. Right. So during the 70s into the 80s, uh, there were many more great things happened in this society, many more opportunities for women to work outside the home. So once that happened, now you've got the case of two parents working. And uh, what are you going to do with the kids during those non-school hours? And into that void were all sorts of organized children activities, of which one called sports was a major, major piece of that. And the, and the other piece, which was another sociological phenomenon, were the incidents of divorce. You know, you didn't have as many two-parent families. So for a single parent, you know, what would you want your kids to do during non-school hours? Well, well, be in something organized for sure. And oftentimes that means sports. It may not be sports. It might be theater. It might be uh, you know, other activities. But sports became very huge, you know, 40 years ago when these two sociological trends hit. Yeah, and it's even moved to the next level now where – People are looking to get something out of sports rather than learning yeah. from it and growing from it. 
don't you think? Well, I mean, if you think of what happened, I mean, the highest salary now in the NBA is around $40 million. It wasn't too long ago, 40 years ago, that the NBA had its first million-dollar-a-year salary. I believe it was Magic Johnson. So in 40 years, the top salary in the NBA has gone from a million to 40. And you could check out all the other sports and see what's happened, you know, with the baseball and the football and find out the salary right. there. I mean, so along with the organization of more and more kids in sport at younger and younger ages has been, you know, the pot of gold, as I said to you in the other day, on the end of the rainbow, the rainbow. What's out there? Well, some unbelievable salaries. And, you know, not that people couldn't make a living playing sport 40, 50, 60 years ago. Sure. Mickey Mantle, who was my baseball idol, made good money with the New York Yankees back in the 50s. Money that's out there today. The stick that too many people are looking at for their kids. I mean, basketball. Right. And yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that the net, because I, I coach high school kids and I have, I have one kid that, um, you know, she's a, she's a very good player. She plays on an elite. They call it Nike elite team. And I, I we'll talk about elite a little bit later. <laughs> maybe, maybe the I mean, worst, I mean, the worst word ever in your sports elite. <laughs> I, I can't stand that. No, I mean, nobody's elite. Maybe, you know, LeBron in that class, you know, Kawhi. Okay. You're elite, but not when you're a junior or sophomore in high school, but okay, that, we'll, we'll talk about grade. that. <laughs> no, no, I mean, but that, that's what's happening. But, um, I guess my point is, I think now kids are shooting for that college scholarship. Yeah. Um, it's, it's crazy now. Kids are going, I mean, these parents are doing whatever they can to get their kids into college, not for academics, for athletics. That, that's, that's scary. It is uh, scary, and the numbers out there, and they're all over the uh, internet. You can find them, whatever you want. And some parents will understand, and a lot of parents will say, "Well, if it's only one percent, well, my kid's going to be the one percent." <laughs> and that, of course, has led to sports specialization again, which we can talk about a little right. while if you'd like. Is well, if my kid's going to be a, a college basketball player, or a college soccer player, or a college baseball player then we better give up those other sports because all of a sudden this better become a 12 month a year uh, routine. Because if I'm not out there playing 12 months a year or my kid isn't, then someone else is going to be, and they're going to be better than my kid. And I'll tell you what, Kevin, if you ever want to make a parent feel bad, just use those words. If your kid's not doing it somewhere else, somewhere, some other kid is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And you don't want to fall behind. Oh, geez. Right. Great thing to say to a parent. You don't want your kid to fall behind. Oh, don't get me going on. Yeah. Yeah. And they're being still. That's again, a lot of these, whether you call them travel coaches, use these soccer coaches, all this travel stuff. They're, they're, these parents are being sold yep. a bill of goods. I will, and I, I hate to say that in public here, but they are being sold a bill of goods. Talk so, about that. So call it call it a bill of goods or whatever you want to. I'm not going to be that harsh. But this is what <laughs> I have told, this is what I have told hundreds, if not thousands, of parents the last 10 or 15 years. Please, when someone tells you this, that your kid's got to play more months, your kid's got to play more tournaments, whatever it is. 
in order not to fall behind. That great quote. All right. Ask the person that's telling you this. Do you have a financial interest in the advice you just gave me and my child? And then stand there and watch him or her come back at you. Do you have a financial interest in the advice you just gave me? Because let's face it, Kevin, if you are running a club in any sport for younger kids, what does that club need? Raw material. Right. Younger kids coming into the pipeline. Because eventually older kids are graduating out of the pipeline. So you need to fill the pipeline. So how do you fill the pipeline? Go to the parents of the younger kids who might be entering the pipeline and say, you'll fall behind if you don't get with us. So I look at the parents and I say, then look very carefully at the response they give you. Because it is well known in my trade, and these club people don't want to know this, that you do not have to play 12 months a year when you're 12 or 10 or 8 or three and a half years old in order to be a better athlete. In fact, it's a very simple equation. After puberty, you might be able to tell some stuff. Before puberty, you can never tell. You can play 3,000 basketball games by the time you're 10. And chances are you'll be a better 10-year-old. No, you won't. You'll be a less worse 10-year-old. But until you go through puberty, I don't want to hear about it. And you've got to realize something. Sometimes girls go through puberty at 9, 10, or 11. Sometimes boys don't hit it till 16. And remember, puberty is only a biological experience. It has nothing to do with coordination. Gee, you think I'm going to reach puberty at 16 and all of a sudden, wham, bam, I'm coordinated. (laughs) It may be two years before I'm coordinated. Right. So now what we're doing is we're evaluating kids, whoever the fool is out there in America, Mm -hmm. evaluating fourth and fifth grade basketball players. What I call it is the evaluations of the least worst. That's what they are. They just happen to be less worse than all the other fourth and fifth graders. None of the kids are any good because they're fifth <laughs> graders. <laughs> we yeah. don't expect them to be any good. <laughs> Unless, of course, these fifth graders are 14 years old. <laughs> and that's another story for another day. Hey, they're two or three years older than their peer group. Of course they're better. Yeah, and of course, people love rankings, and uh, where our society's all about rankings, yep. and um, it's it's crazy. It um, but it, it but but tell me, let's let's go. The article we talked about this a little bit um, the day before, and the ESPN.com did an article called "These Kids Are Ticking Time Bombs: The Threat of Youth Basketball." Tell me about it. It was so interesting, and, and I, I think the article began with. Julius Randle getting hurt on the Lakers and so forth. And, you know, why are these kids, the the injuries among basketball players is prevalent, right? You know where I got a sense of this, Kevin? Very interesting conversation I had with a physical therapist from Long Island about 15 years ago. And one of his patients was a 12-year-old girl who was known as being one of the better or less worse soccer players on Long Island. You know, she was playing on all sorts of high-level club teams. <laughs> hey, she was elite. 
Sure. So, anyways, <laughs> so he's telling me about this girl, and she, of course, has an injury. I don't remember what the injury was. They tweaked her knee or ankle or something. So you know what he had her do one day? And he was even shocked, although he shouldn't have been. He had her play hopscotch. Hey, Kevin, remember hopscotch? Oh, yeah. I used, to play, I used <laughs> to play it all the time. I used to do it, throw that rock out and jump from number one to number two and then, you know, miss the square that the rock was in. <laughs> right? Sure. And he said she couldn't play hopscotch. She didn't wow. have the ability to jump and hop on one foot, land on one foot, and eventually once she reached the rock to lean over and pick up the rock. She couldn't do this. Yet she was one of the least worst 12-year-old soccer players on Long Island. <laughs> wow. <laughs> would understand this. And this was pointed at the SBN article. Sure. I think they mentioned one kid. Yeah, the kid's got a 38-inch vertical jump, and he can't play hopscotch. <laughs> because So it's just, is it motor? Um, and I guess what they're saying is, they don't have the motor skills or the coordination. Well, is that being neglected? I mean, what well, th- t- tell us I about mean, the article was good, and I would recommend everybody read it because I love the way they describe it. It's like the souped-up race car, you know, that can go a gazillion miles an hour, but the brakes and the struts and the axles aren't there yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what are the chances of this car going a gazillion miles an hour breaking down? And as I said, it's like the kid with the 38-inch vertical jump, <laughs> but he can't play hopscotch. He doesn't have your basic level of coordination. You know, I have, right. I have always said basketball, the sport of basketball, is the greatest sport ever, and it's really hard to play if you cannot balance your upper body coordination with your lower body coordination. It's one of the unique things about basketball. Because you need footwork and speed and agility and change of direction down at the bottom. But you still need the upper body to catch and dribble and stop and do all that other stuff. I mean, I have been doing clinics for 30 years, Kevin. Maybe I'll come to Georgia and do one. Absolutely. We got to make sure we get you down here, Coach. Well, (laughs) for a few hours, you know what I focus on? How to catch a ball on balance while stopping. So you can do the next thing quicker. Right. Yes. And I've been saying this for years. Michael Jordan is the best I've ever seen at it. But the problem is they never showed it on the Sports Center top 10 highlights because they weren't going to show Michael Jordan catching a ball. They were going to show him dunking a ball. But he was the best I've ever seen at catching quickly with a, with a crouch ready to go and do the next thing which, by the way, was done very quickly when it came to Michael Jordan. But they never showed that. (laughs) It's a basic, fundamental skill. It's what I call the ABCs of ABCs. Yeah, and you watched Jordan back. I mean, of course, I'm old enough that that I watched him. um, Still there? Yeah, can you hear me? Okay, great. Um, I mean, even though I started, you know, the one thing I entered basketball with in ninth grade at all of six foot tall and 125 pounds. I was not what you'd call a master of muscles, <laughs> but I yeah. entered with above average coordination because of all the playground and sandlot stuff I had been doing for 10 years and catching and throwing of balls and footballs and street hockey and everything else. 
I was a right. above average, well coordinated, very skinny, like a fourteen year old. So the playing of basketball and the learning of basketball came along pretty quickly, because I always all already had a basis of coordination. So I could learn the sport as a coordinated teenager. What's happened today is, the, yeah, the kids are certainly better than I was when I was 11, 12, 13, or 14 because they've learned more basketball and played more basketball. I'm not sure they are more coordinated athletes than I was at the same age. I don't think they are. No, I, um, I'm inclined to agree with you, and I think but, – but those same games that you played, I guarantee – I mean, my mom and dad are, are not telling me, hey, you need to go outside and play. We just did it. Well, because it was fun, which is the number, it was fun. number one reason yeah. a kid plays sports, to have fun. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> if it wasn't fun, we would have found something else to do. <laughs> uh, yes. Hopefully not robbing banks and things like that. But, but we chose. It was ownership. It was kids' ownership. This is what I want to do. And to me, that's how you create passion and love for something, right? So, I mean, the love of, I mean, you know, people talk all the time, these adults. And I tell them, you forget when you went to the playgrounds. You know, we, they need us to be competitive. I said, some of the most competitive activities I've ever taken, even all the way through my formal basketball career, were done with other kids on playgrounds. Are you kidding right. me? We argued. We hit each other in the nose. We went home angry. <laughs> and then guess what? We got up the next day and did it again. <laughs> they were incredibly competitive. They might not have been very good, but they were competitive athletic activities done on our own. We, oh, we yeah. didn't need the adults yeah, around we... to compete for us. We competed on our yeah, own. Right. <laughs> and I know, you know so on the playground, you made your own calls. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, there were arguments but you figured out a way to work it out, man. I mean, to me, there's nothing like the playground atmosphere. I don't, I think, I think we're getting farther and farther away from no, it. Right. No doubt. Oh, by the way, my now 27 year old. Second grader. And our... I was available during the day and right after school. And you know what I had the kids do? There were three fields down by a lake. They were probably the fields all the size of a basketball court. So it was three or four V four, no goalkeepers. I hate goalkeepers. All right. Just score as many goals as you can. And it was me running three fields. And some of the moms who were there were saying, how can you do this? I said, I'm not doing much because I let them play on their own. So I always told sure. people when the ball goes out of bounds, which in that, in that case is like every seven seconds, watch what happens. And they did. So Johnny and Billy are looking at each other to decide who's, you know, whose leg the ball went out on. And you know how long <laughs> it takes to figure this out? About 2.3 seconds. Because kids know sure. this intuitively. The longer we argue or stare at each other, the less we play. So the sociologists who have studied this for 50, 60 years call these play-based activities. Whereas organized sports is called adult-based activities. Now it's rules and it's structure and it's umpires and it's referees and officials. And there's a place for that. But that's how the majority of our kids, the majority of the time grow up. Everything is done and adjudicated by the adults. And the kids are oftentimes just pawns in the bigger system. Yeah, that's a great word. I, I think the, I think because 
and I say this, and, I, and I'm a high school basketball coach, and really I got to be careful what I say, but I definitely think ponds is the right word because when you go to these big AAU tournaments, Bob, somebody's making a lot of money, and, and very few college coaches are hanging out at a lot of these tournaments and it's just a facade. Yeah, well, okay. okay. Um, whereas I think, and I'm not going to slam the process, the making of money, the capitalism, I get it. I mean, and it's grown for 30 years, the club, youth sure. sports system, basketball, AAU, premier soccer, whatever baseball is in Georgia. And it's huge down there. I get it. I, I don't decry that someone's making money on this and how much they are. And then by the way, I'm not sure some of them are making a whole lot because there are expenses. But what sure. what has happened, of course, is it's now firmly etched into our you know youth sports industrial complex that your kid needs to be part of this because if they're not, then somebody else's kid is part of it, and they're going to be seen and not you. Well, okay, at a certain age group, at a certain level, at a certain tournament, I get that there are going to be more college coaches there than not. And many of those tournaments, you say, don't have that. But at the same time, as they're playing these tournaments, you know, this weekend and next weekend and the weekend after that, what is to be gained? How much are they really learning? Is the coach giving them a chance to work on their weaknesses, even though their weaknesses may cost them the game? Or are they plugging those kids into what they do best? And they may indeed help the team they're playing with win and they may go another two two games farther into the tournament but are kids really getting better i mean you're a high school coach so you know this you've had several kids play club basketball that's one thing uh, amongst many that worry me yeah that makes a lot of sense and i i think well i i mean i can tell you straight out i think it's more on they're playing for the scoreboard more than anything else. Uh, which which I, and, I don't mind. I mean, especially at the 15 to 18-year-old level. Okay, fine. Win the game. Try to win the game. But at the same time, right. as I tell parents, if your kid signs up for this and he or she is not playing much because the coach obviously favors the more talented kids or the less worse, as I call them, then right. you've got to ask yourself a question. You're going to fork out 400, 600, 800, 1,000 bucks to watch your kids sit on the bench? in the off season when your kid needs reps and playing time. So right. you've got to square that with the uh, club basketball program you're talking with. That's the other thing that I tell them all the time. You've got to be very frank with these people before you sign up your kid. Because if your kid is trying to make the varsity next year, you know, she's a sophomore this year or a freshman this year, is she going to get the right amount of reps and the right amount of playing time? in order to learn how to play better. So he or she has a chance to make that team next year. But if you go with a club that favors winning and has better players, then your kid might rot on a bench. <laughs> and what are you spending your money for? Yeah, and, and Bob, this is, this is coming from my eyes, and hopefully that'll help kind of, kind of see where I'm coming from. What, what I see is – if kids are getting training, they're getting paid training, which I totally don't. I, I do. I do agree to a certain extent, but I think kids, I think like I do with my players, I try to give them things they need to work on and particular drills. And I try to give them the ownership to work on them themselves. Um, Cause I think, I think that's for the long run. I think when they take ownership, they'll get better. 
Uh, other than that, I don't think the kids are really working on their own game. If they don't have a left hand, you know, a lot of these kids are not working on their left hand. They're continually just, you know, playing games and so forth. So I think that's a big problem. By the way, you are talking to someone who probably could have made another million. <laughs> the people that have approached me have kids that are too young. And Kevin, I will tell you my standard line. I have used this many times when someone would call me or contact me. Make sure your kid's going into ninth grade before you contact me again. I want to make sure your kid's doing this because the kid wants to do that, not because dad wants you to work with right. him as pro. Because very simply, oftentimes, it's the manifestation of the parent's wish. Well, if I can get my you know, seven-year-old, my two-year-old together with this former pro, imagine how good he or she's going to be. <laughs> so I've turned down work. And as you know, the training network out there, it's grown exponentially the last 20 years. It is now 100 oh, yeah, times larger sure. now than it was when you probably first started <laughs> coaching. So what you have out there, okay, you've got trainers, and they're out there to make a buck. And, okay, so as I tell the parents all the time, what does this trainer know? What is this trainer going to teach your kid? Is this kid going to be learning stuff that might help him or her make the varsity? Or, you know, get more playing time for the varsity coach, whatever the need is. I, I have run across this because I have so many high school coaching friends, uh, Kevin, and you probably have too, because you've got a ton of high school coaching friends all over the country. <laughs> Is you've got right, the, right. you've got the three or four kids on the court at the same time, all who have had shooting training, and all have taken thousands of reps in the off season, <laughs> and they're fighting each other for shots. Well, hey, I worked on my shot. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is you only have one basketball <laughs> to share. That's true. <laughs> I mean, I know I know a high school coach who had a kid who was not a very good shooter, even though the dad had signed the kid up for several summers with a shooter, a trainer, and this and a trainer that. And the dad was not a good guy. I knew the dad. And what would happen when the ball swung over to the kid on the floor near the dad, the dad, of course, would say, shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> so the kid would listen to dad and shoot it. Well, it might have been an entirely right. inappropriate shot. They they may have been trying to post up someone to get it into the post. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so now you run into those kind of anecdotes and stories. And it, it's kind of interesting, Kevin, you're not as old as me, but you've been around a while, is how many trainers for individual athletes in team sports were there? before 1995, 25 years ago. Did you ever see one? Probably not many. I, I'll, no, tell you, no. I'll tell you where the trainers were for youth sports. They were golf and tennis. That's where you had people giving lessons to young athletes, golf and tennis, right. individual sports. I never saw one before 1995. I'm sure someone was out there. I was out there, but I did very little of this work. I've done a little in the last 20 years with high school kids, you know, that I know. But very simply, this is unbelievable what's happened, is the trainers, the lesson givers of athletes and team sports. And it's funny because baseball is one of those funny sports where it's, an it's a team sport, but made up of individuals. And let's face it, any baseball coach would tell you, well, I would love all my guys to hit 300. 
And if they were great, I'd love them all to hit 400 because they're not going to take their batting average away from someone else or take someone else's batting average. But if you have five people on the floor who want to get 20 shots a game, <laughs> what do you think, coach? <laughs> That's going to be a little difficult. Well, I deserve 20 shots a game. I took a million shots this summer with my trainer. <laughs> so that's a little more of a team sport than baseball, where if you're taking hitting lessons and everybody's hitting 300, so much the better. It's a harder lineup to uh, get out. Kevin. Kevin. Coaches, I got an exciting announcement. On September 14, 2019, the Legends on the Lake Basketball Coaching Clinic will be back. Um, we're really excited to host a great clinic this year. Uh, we will have the top coaches in the state of Georgia and around the country uh, attend our 2019 clinic here at Lake Oconee Academy in Greensboro, Georgia. The clinic will go from 8 a.m. until 6 p.m. We, we feel like we are the most unique coaches clinic in the country and that we will have a live demonstration team from Middle Georgia Prep School demonstrating all the on-court activities for the speakers. In addition, we'll have the best high school coaches from states like Georgia, Wisconsin, Alabama, Tennessee, Missouri, and New Jersey. We have speakers starting at 8 a.m., and we will have our last speaker at 3.45 p.m. We provide the coaches with a meal, snacks, shirt, everything they need in our beautiful new facility here at Lake Oconee Academy. You cannot go wrong. If you're interested in signing up for this clinic, I will give you a special deal. Please put <clears throat> a special code <clears throat> of LEGENDS. And you email me at furtadok57 at gmail.com. I will give you a special discount if you come to our clinic. And also, I'll provide you any hotels that are close by the school. We're right off of I-20 here in Greensboro, Georgia. Looking forward to seeing all you coaches. Take care. Back after a short break. How you doing, man? <laughs> well at least i got back to you <laughs> absolutely that was quick um, that was much hey, quicker than the, the other time so hey maybe hey, we, you're getting, that was about a half hour we got hit you're getting pretty good my friend i tell you you're getting pretty uh, sharp on hey let's let's not pat me on the back yet i can certainly mess this up very quickly i'm sure <laughs> hey can you go into i i love i mean i have all your take I, I love how you teach kids i think it's so what you call, and I, I teach the same way in PE, age appropriate. And I love the, 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 the skill drills that you do. I think that's a big problem in youth basketball, and that is we're jumping. We're going from A to M instead of from A to B in teaching kids. What do you think? Hey, I might appreciate A to M. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> well, uh,
There is one challenge that I undertook in the early 90s that I've never been able to conquer, even close, and that is the height of the basket in third right. and fourth grade. 98.6%. Uh, that's not exact. It could be 97. It could be 99. Do you still hear, Kevin? Yes. Yeah. Of the baskets, which third and fourth graders play competitive mm-hmm. basketball on five on five, which I hate anyways, but anyways, right we'll get to that in a moment is 10 feet. So I tell these people all the time, and I've been saying this for decades. So congratulate yourselves. You're four foot six, four foot eight, five foot, 70, 80, 90 pound kids are playing basketball at the same height basket that LeBron James shoots at. <laughs> LeBron right, that's James crazy. and Anthony Davis play on the same height basket that your four foot 10 kids do. <laughs> and I said, it's funny, Little League Baseball, founded in 1939 in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, that guy, talk about ahead of his time. Right. Guess what he founded? A small-sided diamond, 60-foot base pass. <laughs> exactly. 45-foot <laughs> pitching distance. This is 1939. This is 80 years ago. Why? Because he did the proper physical education thing, and I'm sure you've heard this as a professional. Instead of changing the kids to the game, you changed the game to the kids. That's what you do. And right. that's what the fellow in Williamsport, Pennsylvania did in 1939. 60-foot base pass and 45-foot pitching distance. So what happens at age 13 in baseball? It goes to 90-foot base pass and 60-foot pitching distance. That's what the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Braves play on, right? right. By the way, if you do the math, 90 times 90 is 8,100 square feet. 60 times 60 is 3,600 square feet. So the size of the infield over doubles in one year. But someone figured this out 80 years ago. How about soccer? A huge sport in this country, youth sport. What did they do at kindergarten, second grade, fourth grade, sixth grade? I'm sure you know. They play mm-hmm. small-sided games Small on sided, smaller yeah. fields. Right. They adapted the games to the kids. By the way, when soccer first became a fairly large youth sport in this country, they were playing the 110 by 60-yard variety, 11 by 11. Do you know how long it took to get that ball down the field with first graders? (laughs) Oh, forever. People all the time, that's like adults playing on a two-mile by three-mile field. So someone had the idea in soccer, and I know who did it, and I know the people, and what did they do? They went to France. They went to Italy. They went to the Netherlands. They went to Brazil. They went to Argentina. And what did they bring back in the early 80s? Small-sided games, 3v3, 4v4, 6v6 on smaller fields. What do you get? More touches. What do we do in youth basketball in third and fourth and fifth grade? We play five on five. Why? Because LeBron James plays five on five. Your local high schools play five on five. Your local junior highs and middle schools play five on five. And I look at them and I say, okay, fine. That may be good for their level. But how many fourth grade kids are getting taught algebra two and trigonometry? Right. Which we save for high schools. 
So why not develop a curriculum in sports for kids befitting their age? How about eight-foot baskets? How about three versus three? And what you're going to get is the guy who's the accountant or the mom who doesn't get it. Well, that's not the real game. And I look at them and I say, yeah, but they're real third graders. (laughs) (laughs) And, And you're not worried about trigonometry. Little Johnny and little Sally learning that in fifth grade. We'll get to that later on. Yeah. But what happens is that's where their minds are. They see this at the high schools. They see this on TV. And our kids have to play the grade AAU term. Yeah. Hey, Bob. You hear me? Yes, I'll have to kind of edit that out. Yeah. Hey, make sure your your phone, I'll I'll edit this out. Make sure your phone is uh, close to your ear. It is close to my ear, sure. It has been. Okay, good. And I don't don't want to blow the doors off with my voice, but it, it has stayed close to my ear. Oh, okay, okay. And sometimes, you know... Who so, knows sometimes as far so the as the connection. Moves, the farther it moves away from my body, it sometimes goes Yeah, out. yeah. That's what they, you know, that's what the anchor always say. Make sure you keep it. Sometimes it'll disconnect if it's not. Okay. All right. Well, I'll keep it close and uh, try to. You keep sound great. Voice. Well, I, you know, I don't know what you heard of the last uh, maybe two or three minutes of my rant on full court basketball and, uh, you know, second grade AAU with 84 foot courts <laughs> 10 foot baskets <laughs> well i know this you don't agree with it and i think we're, we're we need more of a uh you know an age-appropriate progression as far as you know small to smaller small-sided games yep. smaller court size everything by the way lower baskets medicine ball yes yes i use it all the time <laughs> <laughs> As I said, that's like a third or fourth grader shooting at a 10-foot hoop. Oh, absolutely. Yep. The... Correct form and teach it. It doesn't matter because all they can do is heave it. Right. And you're going to be mad at them because they're not using the form you just taught them. They can't because it's like you and me shooting a nine-pound ball. And what do we have to do with that nine-pound ball? We can't leave it in front of us. We have to put it down on our shoulder, by our hip, by our rib cage, <laughs> and we have to hoist it. And guess what? Guess what? These little munchkins do when they're shooting at ten-foot baskets. They hoist it. <laughs> oh, yeah, they just throw it up there. Yeah, <clears throat> which is all fine and good, but eventually, as they get older and uh, a little stronger, um, they may have that habit of keeping it on the right, if they're righty, or left side, if they're lefty, of their body to shoot, which is going to be an inconsistent way to shoot down the road. And I'm sure you've had girls. I mean, a lot of them, even at the high school level, they shoot three-pointers off their shoulders. It's the only way right. they can get the ball the 20-foot distance to the basket. Right. 
And some of them have actually uh, adjusted and modified their shot to go in because they just don't have the strength. In fact, it's funny. My own son was a pretty decent high school basketball player, nothing great, but he really couldn't shoot three-pointer regularly with decent form until he was a junior in high school. Before that, it was a little more heaving than it was shooting. So, and we see it all the time. So, Right, and I love the I love the small light ball for my camps. I use yep. a really junior little ball um, that they can grip. Um, that it's so light, um, and we use the baskets as low yep. as possible. Yeah, and uh, um, by the way, the ball um, which wasn't quite as good. I mean, the little balls or the smaller balls, the age appropriate balls. Um, they people have actually adapted to that pretty well around the country. That has not right. been a challenge. The challenge has been the height of the rim and the size of the court and the three-on-three you know, stuff. You know, So many people are wedded to that five-on-five full-court, 10-foot baskets. That's been my biggest challenge. The balls themselves, not too bad. You know, People sort of get it that you need a smaller ball with smaller hands. So, so that hasn't been as a challenge, as much a challenge, put it that way. Yeah, that, that- – yeah, and, and why? Because that three-on-three, three, to me, it just seems – and maybe that's the PE teacher in me, and you mentioned it, it's more touches, the spacing's better. Yeah. Um, for and those it, kids, I mean, you play five-on-five, five, there's three or four kids on a ball. I yeah, mean, it's well, like yeah. – I mean, it, it's ugly. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's not appropriate. Well, I mean, it's all ugly. Even the three-on-three three is ugly. Let's – they're right. young kids. Yeah. But as I say, forgetting about uh, forgetting about what you think of it, how ugly it is, that's not the point. The point is to make more touches and to decongest the court. Right. And it makes <laughs> that it's going to be more congested with ten. None of them can shoot all that well. So what ends up happening is they tend to glom towards the basket, which is a smaller area. And now you're fitting 10 into that smaller area rather than six. <laughs> so as I've said for years, two three-on-three games at two baskets on the same court means 12 kids on the court, not 10, playing five-on-five full. Right. They are touching the ball many more times with three-on-three half-court at two different baskets. I have seen this and done this many times. And as I tell the parents who are a little out of kilter, well, why aren't we playing five on five? I said, do you want your kids to become better basketball players and touch the ball more? Or do you want to play a game that looks like what you see on TV? Not that it's going to look like what you see on TV, but, but again, and as I said, soccer figured this out 50 years ago in other countries, 30, 40 years ago here, hockey, ice hockey. They've had trouble with this. Although the last 10, 15 years, they've gotten better across the country. Small-sided games played between the red and the blue line. They're adapting the games to the kids. They're not adapting the kids to the games. In other words, what you see on TV or what you see at your high schools. Plus what you could do with a hockey rink, which costs a lot of money. You could get more games on an hockey rink, which you're paying like 250 bucks an hour for the ice. Right. <laughs> so you're getting more kids, more throughput. I said financially it works better too. And I've done, I've done the three-on-three with two fairly small full courts in a regular gym where you've got 24 kids playing at once. 
And you know what most people would do? They'd play five on five on the full court. So you'd have 10 kids playing in the gym. Now you've got 24 playing. Getting more active. Getting more, more kids in the, same, in the same area. And again, as a yeah. physical education person, you understand this. But you try to run this by a youth basketball person whose you know, highest level was high school basketball, and they want to play five on five because that's all they've ever known. So this is hard. And Bob, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And, and, and since you're saying that, are we not doing a very good job on developing good recreation directors, youth directors, where this should be like, this should be part of the youth development model, right? Um, yeah, you know what? I know a lot of park and rec directors in this country because all, all, many, many of them have hosted my talks. And right. they get it because that's all part of their learning and what they go through when they're in college and getting their degrees and uh, what they're learning. So I don't have as much trouble with them. Uh, but what they have trouble with is they need adult volunteers to run these oh, programs and true. coach these programs. Right. And as I've often said, what background other than having played the sport, maybe, do these adult volunteers have? They are butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, accountants, lawyers, salesmen, and truck drivers. What do they know? about physical education what do they know about child development which by the way as you well know are the two most important pieces if you really want to become learned in youth sports it has nothing to do with how much baseball you played in high school or soccer or basketball or whether you played small college this or large college that and by the way you're talking to someone who played professional basketball in the nba and until 30 years ago late 80s I didn't have a freaking clue about what I was doing with kids. I was as bad as anybody else because I didn't know any better. But it was only when in the early 90s I started studying this stuff. And who did I run across when I started studying? Child development experts and physical educators. And I tell the basketball people all the time this. I'm not coming to you. I'm not going to get anything because all you guys do is talk to each other, high school, college, and pros. I'm going to the physical educators and the child development people. They're the ones that I talk with because they understand the raw material called the child. What do we do with them? We adapt the games to their age-appropriate needs. We don't yeah, adapt sure. them to the game. It is PE lesson number one. I'm sure you've heard it once or twice in your life, Kevin. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. And it's, it's total involvement. It's, it's, my goal is... I want my kids, if I have a 45-minute class, my goal, my goal is 100% participation. And we don't get there, but we get pretty close to that 92 93% of the class, they are actively involved, which means less talking, yep. less instruction, and then you got to let them move. Yep. And that, that's hard work. That's very hard work. Oh. Well, I mean, again, I've done this. I've, I've done the PE thing, even though I'm not a physical, physical education professional. I mean, I've been in a gym with 40 teenagers running a clinic <laughs> for three hours or 50 or 60. In fact, my all-time greatest was in New Hampshire about 10 years ago. I had 90 kids for two and a half hours. Middle school. Nice. Middle school. Nice. Ooh, man. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough age group. But I, you know, <laughs> I knew what I was doing and had it and kept them busy. And at the same time, imparted some information and stuff that they needed to know. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, talk about hurting cats. And I said, sure, there was a certain amount of that, too. <laughs> but at the same time, the idea is activity. And obviously, the idea is learning. But a lot of it is also, as you alluded to, guided self-discovery. 
which of course is what our playground games were in another generation. We didn't think of it that way. We were just going and having fun and playing games with our buddies or against our buddies. But it was guided self-discovery. We were getting coordinated. We were learning how to interact. We were learning how to settle disputes, life skills, and at the same time, move on with our lives. And there's some benefits to that, as you know. Yes, and and tell me, tell our listeners, how would you, what's the best way, because many of the coaches are like me, and I have access to all my kids, K through 12. I'm very lucky. Yeah. Um, what's the best way to teach a youth practice? I know that sounds simple, but I see some bad practices from a lot of different youth coaches. Give us some example of how you can set up a a great youth practice. And guess what? I stole this from the soccer people. I love the soccer people. Some of the youth soccer people have really challenged me and changed the way I think about basketball. I I think half of what I do in youth basketball is an adaptation from stuff I stole from soccer. And the one thing I learned from soccer pretty early on, two things. Number one, one third, one third, one third. Whatever the, let's say it's an hour. The first 20 minutes, and it doesn't have to be exact. It could be 18. It could be 23. It doesn't matter. Every kid has a ball doing something with that ball for that first 20 minutes. Second third. Small-sided games, 2v2, 3v3. you notice I have the soccer lingo here. And the fourth, I'm sorry, the third third would be the last 20 minutes would be a controlled five-on-five. Although at the younger levels, I don't want five-on-five. I want three-on-three. So it would be controlled three-on-three. Maybe two games going on at once if you have 12 kids. So that's sort of the structure of any youth basketball practice. And obviously within those 20-minute segments, you've got some different things you can do. But as I've always told youth coaches, if that kid is not touching the ball at least 500 times during that hour, you haven't done your job. So therefore, if you gather them around to teach them a play, hold yourself up and say, I'm not doing this. Because while you're doing the teaching, what is happening? What are those 10 kids doing, those 12 kids doing, however many you have there? A couple of them are holding a ball, probably. (laughs) But no one's doing anything. The, the second one I stole from soccer, I love. You may have heard this. Never do the three L's. Hey, Kevin, you know what the three L's are? Lines, lectures. <laughs> now I forgot my other L. Oh, laps. <laughs> if you're running a practice and you want lines, lectures, and laps, you have already disengaged yourself from the players. Uh. Guess what? Hey coaches, this is Nick Bartlett with Dr. Dish Basketball, and you're listening to the Championship Vision Podcast with Coach Kevin Furtado. Make sure to check us out at drdishbasketball.com and on Twitter and Instagram at, at DrDishBball for daily basketball drills, tips, inspiration, and how we've revolutionized the basketball shooting machine over here at Dr. Dish. Also mention this podcast and you will receive an exclusive discount on your next Dr. Dish purchase. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Bob. Hey, hey, uh, hey, my last question. I know I appreciate you taking the time out. Um, hey, give me, give me some great drills that you can kind of offer to our coaches, maybe even to teach footwork. 
how do you teach shooting the kids? Some of the things that are starting out in your practice. Um, basically, I'm, I'm going to pull. Because, as you know, with younger children, elementary school children, that is the least difficult skill for them to learn. Because the ball goes with gravity when you dribble. Right. The more you go against gravity, which would be passing and ultimately shooting, which is against gravity, the more difficult those skills are. So to give kids any sort of comfort zone, young children in basketball, you've got to go with the dribbling first. And then the passing and the uh, shooting can come a little okay. later. So that's one piece, um, which you probably you might have seen on YouTube. I talked about that. Now, sure. the second piece of that is obviously philosophically, um, coaches will say, well, do we really want him dribbling this much? Because over dribbling is, <laughs> is not a great thing. And I said, yes. But if you think of um, their comfort level and what they can do, passing and shooting are so much harder and what you do run the risk of is kids to dribbling too much. So when you're playing that three-on-three -three game, oftentimes what I tell coaches, depending on the age, let's say upper. Maybe three, let's say. Sure. You only get three dribbles, and then you have to give it up, pass to someone else, that sort of thing. So now they're beginning to learn philosophically that uh, rather than just dribble for dribbling's sake, maybe I should dribble to get something done. It's not an easily teachable thing at this age. And at the younger ages, the kindergarten through third, they've just got to dribble, period, because they're not going to pass it well. They're not going to shoot it well. And the defense, as you know, is always ahead of the offense at those ages because defense can play without the ball. It makes them sure. less uncoordinated. When you have the ball in your hands and you're trying to do things with someone shadowing you and their hand, hand, arms and legs everywhere, it gets pretty tough. Yeah, it's so, tough. So, again, this is more an age group thing. As you move into the middle school levels, as you well know, because you've taught this game at all levels, now you begin to share some tactical stuff. And I'm not talking about running flex offense and things like that. What I'm talking about is what do I do when I don't have the ball? the ultimate question in any sport that only has one ball. So I pass the ball. I don't have it anymore. What do I do? Well, the first thing they could stand, which makes them very easy to guard. And you can ask them if you were defending someone who was standing. Yeah, that would be pretty easy coach. So where do you go? What do you do? Well, you can never at least it takes your defender away. The second thing, go set a screen. Wonderful. As they get older, they can learn to set a screen away from the ball, something that disappeared from our game <laughs> quite a bit in the last <laughs> 10 or 15 years. So you've got that. And then uh, from the tactical standpoint, it really begins uh, once they're 12 to 14 years old. Now they've got the minds and the conceptual way of thinking to be able to understand that stuff. But I am dead.
trying to listen to you and understand. And you wonder why they don't get it. Now, some of your coaching brethren out there may not agree with me because like, they're coaches. They like to teach plays. But I'll tell you what, there are a lot better things you can do with 10-year-olds and 8-year-olds in basketball than trying to figure out a play. And by the way, yeah. don't, even, don't even get me going on zones and traps and presses. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. Shouldn't even, yes. be, shouldn't even be until high school. That stuff. Because that adds a level of complexity. As I've always said, the zone offense may be the single most complex thing you can teach at any level in basketball. Because you've got to move the ball and you've got to move bodies at the same time. Hey, good luck with your seventh graders on that one. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love what you're saying, though, because I, I, I teach now. Yep. Yes, yes. Um, I teach concepts more than I do plays. Um, yep. You know, and our basic, uh, we, we run some simple stuff, um, but we teach pass cut. And we also teach sure. also – to drive and dribble into gaps to create space for other players. Um, but really that pass cut is a big part of our offensive scheme zone and man. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the physical education and the child development people will tell you once you add another body and the interaction with that body to the mix, which is what a pass would be, you have already ratcheted up the complexity now, if I'm throwing a pass to you and you're not defended, that is not too tough a pass to make, even if I'm eight years old. But if I'm being defended and you're being defended and I've got to make that pass, what happens to the complexity of the action? It goes up because now I've got to throw it through the person defending me or throw it by him or her. And I've got to throw it to you and you're being defended, <laughs> which is why you see a lot more kids dribbling at these ages. Because it's so hard to complete that task. Just making a simple 10 or 12 foot pass is not simple because no. you're being defended. So you got all these other so, so, you know, basically what we do in youth sports and youth basketball is we advance the game way too soon. Instead of teaching the so-called fundamentals, you know, we shoot by those and then we get to the complexities. And a lot of people don't realize how complex these things are. Kevin, did you leave me? Yeah, I, I got there. you. Yes, sir. You're still there. Good. I'm still still here, and I, I love that. Yes, I, I definitely think we overcoach and underteach the game, right? Yep. Well, Pete Newell said that how many years ago? 40 years ago? <laughs> Great Pete Newell. And by the way, he was talking about the higher levels of basketball. He wasn't talking about youth. <laughs> America's most overcoached and undertaught sport, basketball. What a great line. I've used it many times. And hopefully <laughs> I've attributed to Pete as many times as I've used it. So, But I think your great coaches, I think, can take – because just the ability, like you said, just the ability – to catch, step into the pass, catch it, and square up takes a lot of practice. Oh, are you kidding me? Hey, you talk about I mean, that's a hard skill. Talk, I'm still on. Talk about yes. Talk about catching a ball, cutting out from the basket <laughs> on the wing, 15 feet. Yeah, from yeah. the pass thrown at the top of the key, while being defended. Now you have to catch, pivot, protect the ball, face the basket to look for the next thing. Sure. Are you kidding me? That's not that's not a that's not an easy thing to do. It is not. 
So try teaching that to your local eight and 10 year olds. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's just so much going on physically and neurologically at that point. But of course, we see it on TV with people who have done this tens of thousands of times. And say, oh, that looks pretty easy. Yeah, because they've done it tens of thousands of times and they're 22 years old. Right. (laughs) Hey, Bob, coach, tell me about this is what I do in my camps, and I might be way off the wall. I give points for pass catches and I give points for rebounds. Um, And it's amazing how the kids start doing those things better. Well, is it? I mean, <laughs> they will do what they're being rewarded for. Or rewarded for. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I think I, it's important. I think you value those things that I think are lead to good shots. Well, as I've said for years, and uh, at the at the youth level, you know, before even eighth grade, I minimize uh, rebounding and defense, not because it's not valuable and it certainly as anybody knows at the higher levels how important rebounding and defense is right and in fact i've said this for years the single most essential skill in basketball is rebounding and i've told this to kids for years you may not be able to shoot a three you may not be able to shoot a two you may not be able to dribble (laughs) but if you can rebound at an above average place for your peers even the stupidest coach in the country will play you (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Because rebounding is the essential skill. I said, as long as people miss shots, which they will, they will. Rebounding is essential. (laughs) And it is a, it is a great skill to have. And some kids do it pretty well. One of my best eighth grade rebounders in my son's class who ended up being a very nice uh, football lineman was a big, strong eighth grade kid who couldn't throw the ball in the pond from, from the shore. He was, but I'll tell you what, I think he averaged like 25 rebounds a game. Wow. Because he, oh, just, man. he just carved out <laughs> space underneath the basket. And what would do, what do we do out of those 25 rebounds a game? 10 of them were his missed shots. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so he, he may be the greatest eighth grade rebounder I've ever seen. And he had no singular <laughs> skill in basketball other than be able to rebound his missed shots. <laughs> so, but getting, you know, getting to the, uh, the nature of the game, I spend a lot more time on offensive skills, passing, shooting, dribbling at the younger right. ages than I do on the defense and the rebounding because they need the ball in their hands. And they need to be able to learn how to play the game with comfort with the ball in their hands, which is a hard skill, as we've already determined, just catching the ball and facing with a player, you know, two inches from you, hounding you, who doesn't have the ball in his or her hands and is more coordinated than you are because they don't have a ball in their hands. And you're not allowed to travel and you're not allowed to double dribble, which goes on anyways, because they have to for their comfort level. Um, these are not easy skills, but people who have played basketball and are 35 or 40 years old and might still be playing basketball, there is some ease and comfort for them doing this. So sometimes they project what they find easy onto the kids and they they wonder why the kids don't get it. Well, the kids don't get it because they're kids. They're nine years old. Right. That's why. <laughs> so that that is one of the challenges. Absolutely. Hey, hey, Coach, my last question for you is this. I know, um, and I, I tell you, I really enjoyed the time. You are, I mean, you are offering some great advice for a lot of youth coaches out there and high school coaches who run their entire program. Tell me about what should we do more at the youth basketball level? Should we focus more on the whole person or the athlete 
rather than developing an elite athlete. I mean, yep. uh, it just seems like everything's about elite. And Well, I mean, as, as, as we said, there's no such thing as elite before puberty. Strike it from your vocabulary before puberty. I'm not sure there is afterwards, but forgetting that. All right. I, I have said this for years, and some of your basketball people aren't going to like it. Very simply, if you want them to become better athletes playing the game of basketball, make sure they play two or three other sports. All the way up. I don't want them playing basketball 12 months a year. I want them playing soccer. I want them doing track and field. I want them playing right. lacrosse. I want them playing hockey. Give the basketball muscles a rest and learn to coordinate the rest of the body. All those sports, by the way, martial arts is tremendous. Gymnastics is tremendous. Gets tougher to play, uh, to do gymnastics as you get older and bigger. Right. But as younger kids sports, three, four, five, six years old, I can't think of anything better than gymnastics and martial arts. And by the way, swimming for two reasons. Number one, water safety. So you know your way around water and you're comfortable with it. But do you realize what you have to go through to swim and keep yourself up and moving forward? I'm sure you probably study this in PE. Absolutely. Tremendous challenge. Swimmers are really good athletes. I mean, they don't necessarily throw a ball in the basket from 15 feet. But the way they coordinate and have to keep their bodies, I mean, there's, there's two forces working against them. One is the water going through it sideways. And the other is gravity pushing you to the bottom of the pool. <laughs> yeah. Plus the fitness, the fitness for yeah. swimming is unbelievable. I mean, well, well, you're talking um, to the, you're the, the woman you talked to earlier that got me on this is just retired from a 43 year collegiate college uh, swimming, uh, collegiate college swimming coaching career. So, okay, great. Yes. I have followed swimming by marriage for many years. <laughs> so, but it, I mean, the, these are the kind of activities and sports I want to see those elementary schools do. I don't want to see them playing basketball full year round. Right. And people think I'm nuts because I'm a basketball guy, and there was no more teenage obsessed basketball player than me once I got into this at 15 or 16. But I had a lot of pent up stuff. But remember, my whole athletic background prior to basketball was all these other sports. And as I said many, many times, it didn't seem to hurt my career. Right. Exposing kids to variety yep. of so activities. Soccer, track and field, lacrosse, baseball, softball, you name it. All good stuff. I don't want to yes. see these 12-month-a-year basketball players, especially before age 14. I, I don't want to see it till 16, but I'll take 14 at the moment the way it's going. Yeah, and that's, yeah that's great advice. It's going to be a hard sell because we, we have created a monster. Yep. But um, I think it's great advice, and I think hopefully uh, we, can get, you know, we can get one or two parents from this podcast listening to that. That would be great. And hey, I, uh, I Bob, maybe a hundred or two hundred, but I'll take one or two. <laughs> believe me. <laughs> but we got, uh, we're having our legends clinic uh, coming up September fourteenth. I sent you an email about it. Um, yeah, let's we, let's we, talk. We, let's talk off the air about that. I, okay. I wanted to talk to you about it, but we we don't need to take the time on the podcast to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But we we would love to have you out and tell give the listeners one last piece of advice and how they can get in contact with you. Okay, well, they're, they're easy to get a hold of me. Uh, my website is www.bob-bigelow.com. My email address is bob-bigelow at comcast.net. And my phone number up here in Massachusetts, if you want to uh, be really low-tech like I am, 
<laughs> call me is 781-729-6134. Geez, someone will actually might make a call to me. Imagine that. <laughs> That's right. And, and uh, if you Google me, you'll find uh, some of the stuff that you found, the YouTube clips and things like that. I'm, uh, I'm all over the Internet here and there. I don't know how I got there, but someone was nice enough to put me there, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that is the basis. And, uh, hey, if I have one overriding uh, piece of advice is your kids only come this way once and you're talking to the dad of a 32 and a 27 year old and my gosh Kevin they were they, they were 12 and 7 like a month ago it seems <laughs> As they time are young men out in the working world doing their <laughs> thing and right. you just wonder where the childhood leaders go every parent complains about this of course when their kids graduate from high school or graduate from college where did the time go and it happens to everybody and my parents warned me when my kids were young it's going to go fast and they were right so please enjoy the ride please <laughs> don't mess it up with all these dreams and men uh, you know I've, I've seen so many dreams cast asunder because the kids didn't want what the parents wanted and the kids didn't quite make it and this and that uh, but all these kids have good qualities even if they may not be able to play college basketball a lot of kids do not play college basketball believe it or not <laughs> right so please enjoy the ride enjoy Great advice. Bob, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for sharing with us. And uh, just keep up the great works. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. I'm really a big believer in creating a better youth model. So well, I really you, appreciate it. Uh, for all you're doing and all the podcasts and everything. As I said, I was very impressed with the however many dozen you've done in the past year or so. I know you've been busy. So thank you. you've got a lot of friends around the country, for sure. I do. I do. And I appreciate you joining me. And um, Bob, let's continue this relationship, and hopefully we'll see you in Georgia soon. Okay, sounds good. All right. Thank Thanks, Coach. Yeah, All right, bye. Hey, coaches, this is Matt Smith, the president and founder of United Basketball Clinics. want to let you know about two great clinics we have going on later this year. The Hoosier Gym Coaches Clinic, August 23rd and 24th at the legendary Hoosier Gym in Knightstown, Indiana. Vance Wahlberg, Dave Love, Doug Porter, Mike Neighbors, John Kaufman, and more will be speaking that weekend. All sessions are on the floor with live demonstration. Also, we have the Peach State Coaches Clinic in Atlanta, Alpharetta, Georgia, September 28th. Hernando Planell, Charmin White, Gene Durden, Alan Whitehart, the staff from Georgia State University, and more. Please visit unitedbasketballclinics.com to register. Early bird pricing ends August 1st. That's unitedbasketballclinics.com. Same staff discount supply. I look forward to seeing you there.